This, our kids are being dismissed with adults, and they're taking them to other adults uh, to supervise them and teach them and encourage them. And they're actually, uh, they, they study a lot of really incredible stuff. I hope y'all are having conversations with your kids um, outside of, um, or trying to connect the dots really on Wednesdays and on Sundays, because when they're in their classes, we're not just entertaining them, uh, we're instructing them and raising them up, and hopefully just reiterating what you're doing in your home. So um, that is what's going on over there, um, in case anyone was wondering. Also, I just wanted to encourage you guys, um, we mentioned at the beginning of the semester on this study that if, if adults were going to be able to have some adult Bible study time, that everyone was going to have to serve with the children in some capacity. And so a couple weeks ago, we mentioned that we needed help with the little ones, um, really the babies, uh, for someone to volunteer time and, and, and serve um, rightly. And uh, man, people stepped up, and uh, that, that need has been fulfilled, but that doesn't mean there's not other needs. So if you're not serving at all with our kids in any capacity, I still want to encourage you to talk to Annie and talk to Tiff, because it is a group project where everyone is included, and so it is a good thing. Um, also, I want to let you know, uh, this Sunday, um, every Sunday on the last Sunday of the month, um, we have our kiddos in with us. Um, not the tiniest ones, but most of them. And so I, I want to know, has anyone in here seen this? Just raise your hand if you've ever seen this. That makes me happy. Thank you. for Fantastic. For about six months now, we email this out every single time we're going to have the children in on the last Sunday of the month. So... Um, you should have all seen it. If you would have opened the attachment that was on the email, you would have had this in your very possession. Um, but what I wanted y'all to see is that um, we are doing our best to come alongside, and a lot of times we'll work hard on tools, and just because we have made these tools doesn't mean that you remember them or that um, maybe you're using them. And so uh, we have a goal of helping you guys to, to be equipped and, and um, given resources that are, that are quality. And having little ones in worship is sometimes different or sometimes we're not used to it, or sometimes we're used to it, and are, it's just difficult because they're kids, and we're asking them to come and sit with us and listen. This right here, family worship and corporate worship, explains why we have kids in with us, and when we do that, and what our hope is. We talk about the teaching process that falls on the parents as the main disciple makers in the lives of their children, and look at here, preparation for corporate worship during corporate worship, and you know what's on the back? Anybody? Follow-up to corporate worship. We, we don't want there to be any, um, in, any cluelessness in this area. So these are good resources. Andy and Tiff have worked on these with some others. And it's everything from um, scriptural basis for why we're doing what we're doing to really practical things like um, a sticker chart or drawing a picture or making a thing, a notebook for your kids on remembering keywords to the sermons. So... If you're wondering, man, why are my kids in with me, and now that they are, what do I do? This will help with that. As well, if y'all will be mindful of visitors on Sunday, for first-time visitors, we put packets together um, where it's kind of a kid's packet that has some things in there for someone who might show up on Sunday and say, oh, fantastic, it's our first Sunday to worship, and we're supposed to take the kids in with us. And they have that terrifying moment where they freeze and say, should we go get in the car? And our hope is to put our arm around them and give them the packet and encourage them to just, uh, just, just bear with it and, and do the work they were called to do, which is very good. So um, those are some housekeeping items that I wanted to mention before we pray and uh, jump into our study. Any questions about any of that? Every, every month, this is emailed to y'all. So if anyone wants this one, you can have it, but please know it's going to be emailed to you, much like it has most of the last year. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Lord, we come to you now, and we thank you for this time uh, that we can stop down in the middle of the week and consider your word. I pray, uh, Lord, that um, as we continue to move forward with our study on spiritual disciplines, that we would be a group of people that are quickened to be more disciplined. I pray that we would be honest about um, areas where your scripture tells us to be about something or to do something where maybe we're, we're not really... Um, pressing forward and pressing on in, in such things. Um, tonight, I, I suspect, is going to be challenging for many of us um, as we talk about fasting uh, before dinner. 
and um, pray that you would guide our time and keep us focused. Uh, we love you, Lord, and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so we have talked about, um, well, what are the two main disciplines we've covered so far? Prayer and meditation. What's the difference? Are they the same or are they different? These are intro questions. You're just supposed to like, are they the same or different? Different. How are they different? It's so one of the older theologians said that the reason our prayers are weak is because we haven't meditated before we pray. So we've learned that the place for meditation is before we pray. And remember in Revelation where there's, you're making some space, emotional and spiritual space for the Lord as he knocks on the door and says, I, I have things to show you and I have things to reveal to you about yourself and I have treasure for you that you will not ever know about if you don't create some space for me to do work in your heart. And so um, we, have, we have learned that we meditate before we pray. What happened to Habakkuk through prayer as we, as we studied it last week? It changed, him. it changed him. How did it change him? How did he begin? What was the beginning of Habakkuk like? Where are you and what are you doing? It was, it was one of those hard-to-read pieces of Scripture where you're saying, you see Habakkuk saying, God, why are you idle? That's not something we would probably normally pray. And I mean, he, he's looking around, he's saying things are really bad, and he feels like God's being idle. And, and how does God respond to him? Does he strike him down with lightning like we might expect? No, he doesn't. What does he do? Mm -hmm. what, what does he tell him to look at? And remember? Turn to Habakkuk 1. This was such a key part of last week's. We can, we're building on this. So turn to Habakkuk 1. Right after Nahum, if that helps anybody. And right, right before Zephaniah, if that helps anybody. We open up with Habakkuk and he says, O oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you, violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. What is Habakkuk's view of God as, we, as he just launches off into his complaint? Dear God, I don't think you care. Dear God, I don't think you're actively involved in what's going on. Dear God, why are you being idle? And God says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. So God, through prayer, tells Habakkuk, I'm doing more than you understand. I'm not idle. I'm not aloof. I'm not distant and disconnected. I'm doing more than you understand. And even if I told it to you, you wouldn't be able to wrap your head around it because you don't have infinite wisdom like I do. And he's, he's tender with Habakkuk when Habakkuk was not quite so respectful to the Lord, which um, may be surprising to some of us. Um, it's almost as though the Lord does want to hear from Habakkuk. And then by the end of Habakkuk, how, how has he changed? We know he's changed. What does he say at the end? Does anyone remember? I will rejoice. No, even if what? Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fluid. The, fluid. The, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. He's saying, if everything's going terrible and there is nothing really to show for, I'm still going to rejoice. So he goes from quite discontent with where he thinks the Lord is moving because he's looking at his surroundings and he's well aware of what's going on, but not aware of what God's doing to through prayer being changed to a guy who can be content. It sounds like Paul learning the, the, the secret of being brought high and brought low and being content in every circumstance. Um, what's one reason or one way that we gain confidence when we pray? So in prayer we're changed, but what else do, do we know happens in prayer? It was from 1 John 5. Yes, in prayer we know that God hears us, and that builds confidence so imagine you're going into some circumstance where you need guidance from the Lord and you go to him in prayer, 
you can then go from prayer to whatever you're needing to face with this confidence that not only did my God allow me to come before him, but he heard my prayers, and that gives confidence to his children. What does it mean to, remember in Isaiah, rouse yourself and take hold of God in prayer? What does that mean? How did you do that this week in response to last week's lesson? Just reword it. I'll start. Get off high center and and pray. He's saying that through prayer, you, you can take you know Habakkuk looking at God, feeling like you're distant. And Habakkuk did the very thing that Isaiah prophesied. He roused himself and he took hold of God in prayer, not as some wild bull that needs to be tamed, but as a sovereign movement where he wants to lay hold of the Lord and understand more of what God is doing, be brought more into line with God's will. And so there's this encouragement that Isaiah gives that Habakkuk actually followed through with to, if you don't feel like it, pray until you do. That works with singing too. If you don't feel like it, you can sing until you feel like it. And, and there's this movement that God does through that where he changes us, he hears us, he wants us to rouse ourselves, take hold of him. And then what were the ways that God invited us to pray? Remember from, I believe it was Matthew? The first one was ask. What were the next two? Ask, seek, and what? Knock. And what happens if you do those things? What does he say happens? You'll receive, you'll find him, and the door will be opened. Um, And why does he make us that promise? Because he keeps his promises because he's a good what? Father, exactly. He's a good father. What we ended with last week is that our God will never give us what is bad for us. He tells us to ask. He tells us to seek. He tells us to knock. He wants us to have that that, um, invitation to come to him as his children. And he promises us. He gives this example of saying even evil parents won't give their kids something terrible if they ask for bread. And he says, I'm better than that. And what we came away with was God will never give you that which is bad for you. Um, the, uh, the thing that's overwhelmed me so far in, in our study on, on meditation and on prayer is, is one, the kindness and the closeness of our God that a lot of times we don't pay attention to. The kindness and the closeness of our God that a lot of times we don't pay attention to. And the thing last week that, um, that really stuck out is that there are some things that we don't have because we haven't asked. That you should sit with that for a moment. There are some things that we don't have because we haven't asked. He said, you have not because you ask not. But it doesn't just stop there. There are also some things that you will have in the future only if you ask. So I'm not real comfortable with this whole... We, together with God, are discerning and figuring out the future. But there's some things you'll only have if you ask for them in prayer. So you can weigh that however it feels right to you, but the reality is there are things that happen in prayer that would not happen had you not prayed. Prayer is important. So tonight we're going to be moving toward talking about the inward discipline of fasting, but I don't want you to think that we're shifting away from prayer to do so. We're going to be talking about fasting, and what we're going to find is that they have a lot in common, and they go together uh, most of the time. So when I say fasting, what comes to mind? What do y'all think about? What? Hunger? Hunger? Yes. Going without something? Yeah. Does it have to be food? No. Sacrifice? What did you say? Commitment? Yeah. It's hard to be much of a faster if you don't have commitment. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Set apart, set apart in your mind, setting your mind apart for a purpose of being changed while you fast. Anything else? Um, I think it was Tim Keller, maybe, Yeah, who wrote a book about humility. And he started off the book saying, hey, I want to kind of clear the air on some things. A guy who's been asked to write a book about humility, you don't want him coming in real high. You, you want him coming in pretty low. 
And he comes in and he says, I'm a, I'm a, a proud man on a journey to try to become more humble through this process. And as I'm sharing about fasting, I can count on one hand the number of significant fasts I've had in the last decade. I've been very, very challenged by all the disciplines. I want to be better at meditating. I certainly want to grow in my prayer life. But when we get to this part about fasting, it's just kind of like, just kind of gets to a stop. And I'm like, man, I'm glad that we don't have to perfect things before we can stand up here and teach and preach. Or else um, this would be one... I don't know if we would ever get up here and teach and preach if we had to perfect anything. We haven't perfected anything. This is one that I want to be honest about up front and that, um, like the others, I've been very challenged, but this is an area where um, I've come up the hill some, but there's a lot more hill to to come up. So um, in Foster's book, remember Richard Foster's book, The Celebration of Discipline, is is sort of an outline that we're using. We didn't use his outline for prayer because he's very Quakerish and there's some weird phrasing that I didn't like. But we're back and we're looking at fasting, and he, he said in his um, research for the chapter on fasting, he said, I could not find a single book published on the subject of Christian fasting from 1861 to 1954, a period of nearly 100 years. So when we're talking about fasting, we're dealing with something that's either misunderstood, um, marginalized, or in some way is unimportant to apparently the a large majority of Christians where maybe it's not practiced as much because um, for nearly 100 years, no one even wrote a book about it. Um, so two questions that we're going to look at tonight are, should we still fast? And if so, what's the point and, and how do we go about it? So turn to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, we're looking to answer the question, should we still fast? And rather than just giving the yes Sunday school answer, we like to have biblical principle and and undergirding for the reasons that we have our answers. So we're going to look in Matthew 6 to find the answer there. And in Matthew 6, 16, this is Jesus talking. We like to pay attention when he's talking. And he says this in, in chapter 6, verse 16. He says, and when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, you have received, or they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Just from that verse, what do we learn about fasting from Jesus? There's an expectation. We need to understand that that, that Jesus was giving instruction on the proper exercise of a common practice of his day. He wasn't introducing something completely foreign or new. There was a common practice of fasting, and Jesus was addressing how that was to be done. What else do we learn from, from these verses about fasting? Yep, there's a temptation. Should be private and hidden. What else? God will reward you. There's a reward from God in secret when it's practiced in secret. Anything else stick out in those verses? Yeah. It's, it, mm-hmm. it is when, not if. What else? Say that again. Don't look gloomy when you do it. I remember uh, some friends of mine travel and do skits, and they, they, it says similar things about prayer in the Word. And they've got this skit where this it says, Look at me, world, I'm praying. And it's like you can see someone with a gloomy face all disheveled walking in on a Sunday morning. And, oh, are you okay? Uh, I'm fasting. Fasting. But he's saying that, you know, steer clear of that, obviously, because um, like other things, you've, you just got your reward that you were looking for. So there's some deeper reward that we must be looking for if we're going to keep this private between us and the Lord. So private between you and the Lord and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Turn to Matthew 9, just a couple pages over, maybe the next page for me. 9.14 says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast? 
but your disciples do not fast. So we've already heard Jesus say, this should be done in private. And some joke are saying, we noticed your lack of fasting. So there's already a disconnect between what Jesus expects and what the culture of the time is expecting. Why are y'all not fasting? And in verse 15 it says, And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, so both are preserved. According to this verse, when should people fast? Bridegroom's taken away. So when would that be? Now. Okay. So I think we've gotten some clarity here on when the expect when Jesus' expectation is on when you'll fast. Because he's saying, I'm here right now. In that moment, he's saying, this is not the right time to fast. But there's a point where I will go away. What's he talking about? The cross. And so he's saying, when I go back to where my father is, that will be a time for us to fast. When the bridegroom is taken away after the cross, that's today. So what is Jesus talking about with these old garment and old wineskin things, it goes from sounding like a very clear explanation to like, what? what? We just took a weird turn. Old covenant and new? Anyone want to take a jab a little more? He's making a big statement about his kingdom. He's making a big statement that Yes, in Judaism, in, in your old covenant laws, there was fasting, and, and, and you, knew, you know what that is, and many of you do that. But in the statement about the wineskins and the statement about the garments, he's saying, I'm not trying to just sort of become a part of that. I'm ushering in an entirely new kingdom. And, and so right now is not the time, but when I leave, that's the time for you to fast, because in fasting there's reward, and what we're going to find is there are other things that go along with fasting. Jesus is making a statement about the nature of his kingdom that... Um, that he's ushering in. So, according to Jesus, if there were ever a proper time for fasting, the time is now. We should be a people that are fasting regularly. Foster notes in his book, he says, for the person longing for a more intimate walk with God, these statements of Jesus are drawing words. This is important because the purpose of the disciplines is not first behavioral, but relational. We have to be very careful every single time we begin this study and start getting into it is that whether we're talking about meditation or prayer or fasting or service or solitude or simplicity or giving, um, we are not talking about just trying to staple fruit to a tree. Um, we're not trying to just talk about behavioral modification. We're talking about a deep relationship with our Lord that he's designed. He has a design for us to walk closely with him. And what we're seeing here is part of that design is fasting, and it's in that close relationship that, of course, we will be changed. I think that's a big reason why a lot of people maybe don't want to embrace the disciplines, because they know if I walk closely with the Lord, it will require change. So here, um, we need to see that it's not first behavioral, it's relational, and God urges us toward fasting for the same reason here, just prayer and meditation, a closer walk with Him. In this, if you're taking notes, write down the focus of fasting isn't fasting. If you are fasting, the focus is not fasting. The focus is God. I read something earlier today that talked about some of us can even, even in the midst of these disciplines, we can grow more inclined to seek God's will than to seek God. And you can't find one apart from the other. You must seek the Lord first, and you'll understand his will. But that's an easy mistake to make when we're talking about these disciplines where, okay, God, I'm here, I'm seeking your will and, and he's, he's wanting time. That's relational time. That is, that is sacred time for y'all to spend together. So don't seek his will over seeking him. Seek him and you'll find his will. So the focus is God. And we've established so far that we should fast. So we're going to go to the next question of what's the point? What, what are we doing when we fast? So turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. What's going on when fasting is occurring 
Bless you. Luke 2, we're going to be in verse 36. This is the part in the gospel where Jesus is being uh, uh, presented at the temple, and we meet a prophetess named Anna. And it's a very, very um, sweet part of the gospel, sweet story. And in verse 36, Luke 2, 36, it says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. My grandmother's 84, I think, this year. So that, that, that's, if you know my grandmother, she's like my grandmother hopefully more holy. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. What do we learn about fasting in these verses? part of your worship. It's not something separate from worship. It's, it's part of your worship. What else do we learn about fasting from these verses? It, that's actually exactly what it says in my notes. It's part of worship and it goes hand in hand with prayer. There's, you're not trying to accomplish a lot by just fasting in and of itself. You will always find it coupled with prayer, with bowing yourself before the Lord, with opening your heart and your mind to the Lord, with spending time with the Lord. So here, what we're seeing from her is that fasting is a part of worship and it goes hand in hand with prayer. Did we see anything else in, in her fasting? Thankfulness. Anything else? Didn't kill her. She lived 84. <laughs> Great point. Turn over to Acts 13. Even if I did have a bunch of examples of fasting and something that the Lord did, it's still so much better to just go and look at those who have done it in Scripture and the examples that are set forth for us. Here's another one, Acts 13. Verse 1, it says, Now there were in the church at Antioch um, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of of Cyrene, Menain, a a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. What do we learn about fasting and prayer in these verses? God can speak through it. God speaks through it. There's a going, there's a behavioral change, there's some effect that comes of it. What else? Again, associated with prayer while they were doing what? Worshiping. Worshiping. Worship and prayer go with fasting. And here we see that God speaks to them. We see an anticipation from both. They're seeking something from the Lord. It's not just sort of a haphazard movement. It's usually the guidance of the Lord that will lead you into fasting. And you're, you may be searching for direction, for discernment, for insight, and the Lord will give you that through prayer. I, my fear as we were talking about meditation and prayer, this, as we've been going through it these last however many weeks, is, is are, are we really anticipating to hear from the Lord? Are we anticipating direction? Are we anticipating insight and wisdom and discernment? Because I, I think some of us still approach God as if he's kind of got his arms crossed and he's just not sure if we should be there. And that's not the way it is. He is eager to hear from his children. He is eager for us to engage him in these things in a very regular manner. This wasn't just this bizarre, like, spiritual weekend getaway where they were doing this. It was just a part of their worship. They were seeking direction on what to do. And here, what else were they doing? 
Yep. So it's not just an individual endeavor. But here it's a part of their corporate worship. And what were they doing? What was the last verse? What does it say? Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called. That's what the Holy Spirit told them while they were fasting and praying and worshiping. And they were laying hands on leadership, laying hands on people who were going to go and do the work of the gospel. And it says, uh, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So it was a preparation to lay hands on someone to go do the work of ministry. Turn to Acts 14. Next page over in verse 23. Acts 14, 23. It says this, and when they had appointed elders for them in every church, this is part of the structure and the leadership of church, of God's bride, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Here again, same question, same answer. It is worship and prayer go with fasting. So I want you to consider for a moment all of the things that take sort of a backseat to prayer. Because I said we're talking about fasting tonight, but I didn't want anyone to make the mistake that we're moving away from prayer. Because in every one of these disciplines so far, we have found things, important things, that take a back seat to prayer. So if you should meditate before you pray, what does that tell you about the amount of time we should probably be meditating? Yeah, anytime we pray, we should be spending some time in meditation considering something, some input from the Word, and then we're going to spend time meditating on it so that we have direction in our prayers and we don't just find ourselves offering up empty phrases and repetition and falling asleep and things like that. It readies us and it does something in our prayers. So in meditation, we could say that productivity and efficiency submit to prayer, right? Because if we're going to pray about something, we're trying to either get something done or gain some direction, and if we're supposed to stop, go to the Word... Look at the word, receive it, go find a quiet place, meditate. God's knocking, we open the door, we let him in, and then after a period of meditation, we then go to the Lord in prayer that's specific and deep and meaningful. So one thing we see is that productivity and efficiency are less important than prayer. It doesn't mean they're unimportant. I love productivity. I love efficiency. I love charts and order and all kinds of things. But what we're seeing here is that even these good things kind of take a backseat to prayer. What else do we see takes a backseat to prayer and fasting? It's kind of obvious. Ourselves. What is probably the most um, common fast? Not doing what? Not eating food. Is food important? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're going to die if you don't eat food. We're clear on that. So what we're seeing here is that productivity and efficiency are take a backseat to prayer because you're supposed to take time to meditate. And then we're also seeing that in fasting, food takes a backseat to prayer. So food is utterly important, but it's saying that for the sake of your prayers, you should do away with that at times. You should, you should refrain from that, abstain from that, or something else, whatever the other thing might be. Generally, the encouragement is not for us to fast from sin. You should put sin to death. So don't be like, you know what, I'm going to quit drinking a bottle of whiskey every night so that I can pray, or I'm going to quit robbing liquor stores so that I can pray. I don't know why all my sins are around the liquor thing tonight, but... Um, but we're just going to be honest. So um, uh, I'm going to refrain from gluttony or something like that. I mean, it's not, we don't fast to lose weight. That's not the point. Don't try to roll your diet plan into a fasting thing. It, 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 it sort of muddies the water. But here, what we are seeing is that whatever it is, it, it's sort of taking a backseat to prayer. And generally, it should be something that means something to you. Don't fast from knitting if you've never knitted in your life. I mean, you're, gonna, you're trying to take, take something that you have put a high level of importance on or God by design as your creators put a high level of importance on, and you're going to refrain from that thing. 1 Corinthians 7 takes the whole thing to another level. I'll just read it. You don't have to turn there. It says, Do not deprive one another, speaking of sex in marriage, 
got quiet. Except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Most uh, male commentators say it's like a 24-hour period there. And it says that you may devote yourselves to prayer. So productivity, efficiency, food, and even the marital bed um, are to be regularly regarded as less important than prayer. So I just have to ask, think of the other things that you may refrain from for for the sake of prayer. Do your priorities reflect this? Are we putting anything on hold for the sake of our prayers? Does the phrase, for the sake of our prayers, find any purchase in our life at all? Would you know if something was wrong in your life that was affecting your prayers in a negative manner? Would you see it? Is is it on your radar? Are our priorities as such that we're putting anything on hold for the sake of our prayers? Fasting does two things. It reveals and it reminds. In Psalm 69, um, verse 10 you can write it down. Um, it says, the, the psalmist just says, I humbled my soul with fasting. I humbled my soul with fasting. Fasting reveals the things that control us. That's what he's alluding to when he says, I humbled my soul with fasting. Fasting reveals the things that control us. Um, fasting is sort of, y'all have heard an example used that if you shake a water bottle, what comes out? Water, yeah, yeah. Why? Because it was full of water. Yes, that that was brilliant. I mean, you you were with me. We were right here. Um, if you shake a water bottle, water comes out because it's full of water. And so, in fasting, a lot of times it will make things come to the surface. And the thing that comes to the surface is what was in your heart. So, what we'll find is fasting reveals the things that control us. Turn over to Matthew four again. Matthew four. Verses 1 through 4. This is right after Jesus was baptized and he's led to the wilderness. And it says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Generally, just for the sake of um, safety and direction, a, a complete fast for any of us would be considered three days. Um, there are other programs you can do where if you want to take that out further, you can, but they always recommend talking to your doctor and being really wise about it. So I wouldn't, I want to encourage you to consider how you can fast in light of this, but I don't want anyone to launch off into a 40 day fast after our study tonight. If you do have a big dinner and pray a lot. Um, so it says, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, look at Jesus' answer. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What else goes with fasting? Reading the Bible. The The word of God. The point isn't just to only afflict yourself in some manner, although that is part of it. But the point is to read the word. Here Jesus reveals something massive. He goes to the word. He says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We are sustained by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Is this just a metaphor? Just an illustration for the sake of capturing our attention? No, it's it's much bigger than a metaphor. Turn over to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, what we see is that this is not just a metaphor. Jesus means what he is saying. Look at 432. Chapter 4, verse 32. We start in verse 31. Uh, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him food? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. 
Again, is this just a metaphor or is he saying something deeper? What I want us to see is that it is not just a metaphor, not just an illustration. He's saying something profound here. How could, what, okay, what is Jesus referring to as his food here? Just to make sure we're clear. What's his food in those two verses? The word and what? And the work. The word and the work. Feast on God's word, do God's work. He's saying, that's my food. What does food do? It sustains you. gives you life. It nourishes you. So how could he refer to his work as food? What must he be saying? It satisfies. The word and, and the work of God satisfy. What else could he be saying here? Nourishment. Do y'all believe that? I need this reminder. This is not just a clever metaphor, but a genuine reality that God sustains his children through the work that he ordains. God sustains his children through the work that he ordains, especially when you are doing that work while feasting on his word. Actually sustains you. We are nourished and sustained by the power of God when we feast on his word through fasting and seek to obey him in response by doing his work. I need this reminder because sometimes the work feels like it's killing me. Do you ever have that where you're trying to minister to people and love people and encourage people? And at the end of the day, you're like, can I do that? Can I keep on doing that for like decades and stuff? Does sometimes ministry feel overwhelming to you when you're considering how you can help those in need, how you can spend and be spent gladly? on the souls of God's children, or maybe even your, your own children. The gladly part is sometimes hard to come by. But what this reminds us of is that through his word and through his work, in the word, in the work, he sustains us by his own power to such a degree that it is stronger than food itself. Now, he has created us as needy beings who so will have to eat again at some point. But it is good for us to know that the work feeds the one who's doing the working. Turn to Isaiah 58. Isaiah 58 does a really good job of illustrating this. I've shared this before. Um, if anyone here struggles with depression or just being down, dark thoughts, um, a lack of joy, a lack of encouragement, um, th- this is a really incredible verse that, that I have gone to many times in my own struggles. It says in Isaiah 58, 10, I want you to think about Jesus saying, God's word, God's work sustains me. It is my food. And look at what it says in Isaiah 58, 10. If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. That is absolutely massive. Jesus says you can fight depression by serving other people, by doing the work he calls us to, by actually giving of your time, giving of your energy, giving of your resources to serve other people. He says, if you pour yourself out for the hungry, insinuating you should pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, meaning you need to look for who is afflicted and figure out what it is they need and want, and you need to figure out a way to get that to them. It is work. Then, if then, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. The dark parts are turned to bright parts when you serve other people. So there is a power and a strength that comes from the Lord when we do his work while feasting on his word that sustains us. Because it's sort of counterintuitive. You might think, well, if I do the work, I'm going to be tired. If I do the work, I'm going to be worn out. If I do the work, I'm just going to be spent. And there are times certainly where we're spent, but we need to know that it, it's God's design that he's got his, his own power that overcomes our weaknesses. In, other, in Corinthians, it says that, in fact, his strength is made perfect in our weakness. We boast in our weakness because in doing so, we boast in Christ. So it's really, I think, an issue here of of us honestly asking ourselves, what is essential? Foster in his book, he says, fasting helps keep keep our balance in life. 
a lot of these things. I mean, we're talking about putting ourselves in the way of grace. We've called it the path of disciplined grace, where I want God to change me. I want God to, to show me things. I want to be closer to God, but we don't get that just by sort of crying out randomly. He says, meditate, pray serve other people, fast. And it is in that way that we place ourselves in that place where he does work on us. That's sort of the way that we open the door that he's knocking on in Revelation to those who are lukewarm. They're just sort of lukewarm and going about their business. And he's saying, no, no, there's more for you, but you have to spend time with me. So we have to ask this question, what is essential? He says, fasting helps keep our balance in life. How easily we begin to allow non-essentials to take precedence in our lives. How quickly we crave things that we do not need until we are enslaved by them. How quickly we crave things that we do not need until we are enslaved by them. So I would ask the question for y'all to consider, what non-essentials are you now enslaved by? Really spend some time praying through this with your spouse, with your kids. Sit and ask your kids, what non-essentials are you now enslaved by? What are you saying you absolutely have to have to be happy or joyful or productive that goes beyond what God has given you as a free gift in Christ? It may be something material. It may be a relationship. But we need to ask that question. And, And what I want us to see tonight is that if you don't really have a clear answer, fasting will help you to find it. If you don't have a clear answer, if you're sitting here saying, I don't know, I don't know what non essentials I'm enslaved by, fast. Take something away to purposefully afflict yourself and figure out what bubbles up to the surface. See if you become sad or see if you become angry and consider why you would become sad over angry or angry over sad or impatient or groaning or discontent. See what bubbles up. What are the non-essentials you're enslaved by? And if you don't have a clear answer, fasting will help. Turn to 1 Corinthians. This is our last place we're going to turn and we'll be done. 1 Corinthians 6.12. I find it interesting that Paul talks about what we're about to read um, to a church that's really known for fleshly living, a church that's known for being lukewarm at best, and a church that's known for having a really terrible lack of self-control. And he says in 1 Corinthians six twelve, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me. But I will not be dominated by anything. His attitude here, as he is explaining his movement in the church and explaining the movement that the church should have in and of themselves, is he's saying, I will not be dominated by anything. He's not just saying, maybe I'll scale back on that a little bit. Maybe I need to watch it. He's saying, I'm making it a point that I will not be dominated by anything. And he he reiterates this in chapter 9. In 9.27, where he's talking about surrendering his rights, and he says at the end of the chapter, he says, but I, in 9.27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What's he fearful of in that verse? Disqualification. He's saying I will discipline my body. I will keep it under control. Fasting is a great way to figure out where you lack self-control. If you say, you know what? I'm not going to drink any Dr. Peppers this week. And within two hours, you're in the corner with the shakes. You're freaking out, looking for a hit. You'll, you'll see, man, I need to exercise some self-control. I, any, it's okay for me to drink doctors, but I, Dr. Peppers, but I will not allow anything to rule over me. Maybe it's fast food. Maybe it's just the convenience of fast food. Maybe, I mean, there, there are, I could give example after example after example. I'll leave that to you. In what ways should you discipline your body and keep it under control and fast and meditate and pray and seek the Lord's guidance, making sure that you are not turning non-essentials into non-negotiables? I find it interesting that Paul stresses these things to a church that's known for fleshly living and a really terrible lack of self-control. So what a reminder for us that discipline brings freedom. You could look at these things and say, oh, I, I discipline my body so as to keep it under control and I'll not let anything control me. You could, that eh, sounds kind of ascetic. Sounds like he's really trying to impress someone. 
No, he wants freedom. He's looking for freedom there. That kind of discipline brings freedom. And, and you can't just weasel your way into it. You have to be disciplined. You have to go through the steps. It's a good reminder that discipline always brings freedom because discipline is an intentional self-affliction that works really hard to be closer to God. I don't want anything to, become, to come between me and my God. And it's in being closer to God that freedom is truly found and your behaviors will be changed. You, your desires will change, so your behaviors will change. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for um, our time tonight studying fasting. Um, none of us have made any progress as we sit here. We learn to pray by praying, we learn to meditate by meditating, and we certainly learn to fast by fasting. Lord, I, I pray that you would just give us wisdom in how to prioritize these things, how to really make these things disciplines. We can't say it's a discipline if we have no real drive to put these things into order so that we might place ourselves on the path of discipline grace. In that, I also just pray for honesty, Lord. I pray for honesty in our conversations with one another. I pray for accountability that is transparent. I pray for conversations with spouses where even tonight, some of us are sitting down and saying, is anything enslaving us that's a non-essential? Should we maybe fast for a particular direction in this area? And I pray that we would um, not have too high an estimation of ourselves, but that we would really humble ourselves before your word and trust Jesus that when we feast on your word and when we do your work, that we believe your power is significant enough to sustain us. As much as many of us would love to not need anything from anybody, I'm thankful that you made us needy. I'm thankful that you made us to where we have to pursue things like disciplines. It reminds us of our fleshliness and it reminds us of our great redeemer. Thank you for giving us an example to follow in Christ. We love you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.